and the forethought to come in with a plan of some sort, even though it was very brief and only 10 statements of what I would do, uh, was a key factor in me being hired as the fire marshal in 1966 as the first county fire marshal. And one of those was to adopt a fire prevention code, and we did in the first year, which that actually established the Chesterfield Fire Department. Up until that time, there were 12 independent, and let me put the emphasis on independent, <laughs> volunteer <laughs> fire companies going in about 180 different directions. And uh, I ended up with a job reported for work uh, July the 1st, 1966. Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And uh, as I mentioned in the first episode, this podcast is about fire service culture and tradition and legacies and legends. And in this episode, we're going to get into some history from the department where I spent the majority of my public safety career, and that is Chesterfield County Fire and EMS. And I think the best place to start with that department is at the beginning. And I think most people would say that the Chesterfield Fire Department, as it was originally known, the name changed to Chesterfield Fire and EMS some years later really started when the county hired its first fire chief in 1969. And uh, today I'm honored to have that first fire chief sitting here with me today, Chief Robert L. Eames. Chief, uh, welcome and thanks for coming out. Chief Dawson, it's a privilege and honor to be here with you today. Me, uh, me as well, I appreciate that. And uh, just a little background for listeners who aren't familiar with Chesterfield, it's, uh, it's in central Virginia, it's a suburb of uh, the capital city of Richmond, covers about 450 square miles. And uh, when I started in 1983, there were about 130 firefighters, career firefighters, 12 fire stations, and we only ran EMS calls when the volunteer rescue squads asked us to. It was a pretty rare event for us to actually run an EMS call. Uh, today, that fire department is a little bigger than it was when Chief Eames took the helm in 1969. Uh, now has 25 fire stations in the neighborhood of about 500 staff. Uh, department remains a combination volunteer career department with some volunteers provides advanced life support uh, transports, as well as a full gamut of the typical fire safe fire department services, including hazardous materials teams, dive team, technical rescue team, and a nationally recognized community paramedic program. And the uh, first question for you, Chief, is uh, in 1969, when uh, you got hired from being the fire marshal for the county to the fire chief, did you ever think the department would be this big? Never in my wildest ideas did I envision the Chesterfield Fire Department being what it is and what size it is today. Well, I, I, I'm one to say that uh, its success today is built on the foundation that you spent uh, in those early years in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s before you retired. And We'll get into some of those stories for sure uh, about how you came to, to be the county's fire marshal and, um, and the fire chief and some things that went on while you were a fire chief, but uh, I, I want to delve back a little bit even further than that into some history. And I'm gonna quote from, uh, from this book, uh, Chesterfield Fire Department, original 13 departments that uh, Dave Creasy wrote, kind of chronicling uh, a lot of the history of the original 13 volunteer fire departments that were in the county and uh, ultimately combined together into the Chesterfield Fire Department under Chief Eames. And uh, I'm gonna guess uh, the Eames that's mentioned here is not the gentleman that's sitting in front of me today, but I know his family history extends well into Ettrick, but uh, the Ettrick Volunteer Fire Department was the first fire department in the county. And this is from uh, Dave Creasy's book, The Village of Ettrick in its southernmost part of Chesterfield County. It borders the cities of Petersburg and Colonial Heights, located on the falls of the Appomattox River. In its early years, Ettrick was known for its cotton and woolen mills, and in 1928, citizens realized the need for fire protection in the fast-growing Ettrick Sanitary District. Firefighters from the city of Richmond and Petersburg were brought in to discuss and solve organizational issues for a new volunteer fire department. And from this meeting and under the direction of R.E. Eames and L.B. Pond, the Ettrick Volunteer Fire Department was formed. And records indicate that the, the officers were uh, Chief Curtis Williams, Assistant Chief Earl Nugent, President R.L. Eames, Vice President L.V. Pond, Secretary W.D. Varner, and 
treasurer Bowling Carter and just uh, mention some of the names in history. And I'm, I know that Eanes is related to you, or at least the, is it two different Eanes or is that a typo? Is it R.E. Eanes or L. Eanes? Were there two Eanes in Ettrick at the time? R.E. Eanes is uh, my, would have been my grandfather who died in a flu epidemic of uh, 1918. And then it was my father, uh, Robert Leslie Eanes Sr., uh, who was the uh, president of the volunteer fire department. But Mr. Lenny Pond and Mr. Walter Edgar Eanes really got the Ettrick Volunteer Fire Department started with the first piece of apparatus, if you'd call it, as a hand-drawn hose cart. The city of Petersburg put a water system and hydrants into the village of Ettrick. So that was the first established fire protection water system in the history of Chesterfield County, right there in the village of Ettrick, getting the water from the Petersburg city. And is that that reference of that Ettrick Sanitary District? That's is that, it, yeah. yes, sir. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I'm guessing that your family history in Ettrick kind of brought you into the fire service. Is that uh, kind of the kind of uh, I certainly father, followed my father into the Ettrick Volunteer Fire Department, but the, I guess you'd call it the causation factor of me being interested in the fire department. I had an uncle, Jesse Lodge, who worked for the uh, City of Richmond in Highland Park Fire Station, and he responded very regrettably to his own house on fire, and his wife lost her life in there, a gas stove exploded. Mm -hmm. And uh, Uncle Jesse responded to that. And when I heard about that as a young child, six, seven years old, I, uh, I kind of made up my mind that maybe I could be a firefighter and help somebody or some family along the way. So that was the uh, emphasis of my thoughts about being a firefighter. And did you join Ettrick uh, when you came of age? How old were you? I did. In 1955, the uh, Ettrick Fire Department, Ettrick Volunteer Fire Department, started a junior fire department. Lenny Pond, George Pond, Dean Johnson, and all the local boys uh, joined the Ettrick Junior Volunteer Fire Department. There's one piece of apparatus, a 35 Ford Orin, uh, that we could ride on and couldn't ride on the first line stuff, but there was always a driver there to take the juniors to a to a fire. Did you get much chance to, to fight fire back then, or did they kind of limit what you could do as a junior firefighter? We were pretty limited, and uh, I know it was a big deal the night that they issued us full protective clothing. That was really something. But uh, we were pretty well watched over in the early years of what we could and could not do. So it was a senior members kind of keeping keeping an eye on the right. young crew. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So how did um, from there? Uh, I know you uh, went into the Air Force. Uh, uh, four years in the Air Force, most of the time in the uh, state of Maine on a SAC base, and uh, then I went to work in the city of Alexandria, and stationed at Fire Station Five, acting lieutenant in the training division, and I was on duty one night. Telephone rang in the fire station, and they said, Bob, telephone for you. And it was Mr. Herbert Browning, a board of supervisor member for the Matawaka District, said, Bob, next time you come home, meaning home in Ettrick from Alexandria on one of my days off, stop in and see me. So I wondered what all that was about, and I met with Mr. Brown, and he said, we're going to hire a, a fire marshal for Chesterfield County, and I want you to apply for it. And next time I came home, uh, he arranged a meeting with the county manager or executive secretary, they called it back in those days, Mr. Melvin Burnett. And we talked a little bit, and he said, uh, Bob, I like what I'm hearing. I want you to apply for this fire marshal's job. And I did, and the interview panel was the county executive secretary, Mr. Burnett, and the six board members. We only have five now, but we had six at that time. And uh, the ironic thing about me applying is the Volunteer Fire Association had made a commitment to the county that none of the current volunteer fire chiefs would apply for the job. So 
I got to the interview about an hour early and asked somebody which way was the Coke machine, and they pointed. And as I went upstairs in the three-story building at Chesterfield, down comes this volunteer fire chief who had applied for the job, even though they had made a pact that none of them would. We exchanged pleasantries and uh, wished each other good luck. And I, uh, I got ended up with the job. The only reason I'm satisfied that I got the jobs, or one of the reasons, is during the interview, Mr. Raymond Britton, uh, the Middle Oathian District Supervisor, said, Mr. Eanes, and I'm 23 years old there. He said, Mr. Eanes, uh, what would you do if you became the fire marshal? And I passed out a paper to each one of the interviewers, and uh, it had a 10-point plan of what I planned to do if I got the fire marshal's job. And I'm satisfied with the preparation and the forethought to come in with a plan of some sort, even though it was very brief and only 10 statements of what I would do uh, was a key factor in me being hired as the fire marshal in 1966 as the first county fire marshal. And one of those was to adopt a fire prevention code. And we did in the first year, which that actually established the Chesterfield Fire Department. Up until that time, there were 12 independent, and let me put the emphasis on independent, <laughs> volunteer <laughs> fire companies going in about 180 different directions. And uh, I ended up with a job reported for work uh, July the 1st, 1966. Had a great time working in the city of Alexander, worked for some great officers. And like I say, I was at one of the busiest fire stations, Station 5 on Cameron Street. Learned an awful lot. And uh, we, uh, we started out. I was in a great big office by myself the first day. It was a desk, a chair, a telephone book, and a telephone. And a car waiting outside, which was off-colored red. And I was picked on a lot about driving an orange fire chief's car. <laughs> so we, uh, we went on from there. Well, what, uh, again, I, I, I spoke with somebody yesterday on a you know, recording a podcast, and um, one of my comments to them then was, I learned something new from people I'm talking to every time, and right. this, is, this is no exception. Um, what, what um, they, they were hiring you as the fire marshal. What, and I know you had that 10-point paper. You, you kind of came in with a plan. But what was the county looking for for you to do as the fire marshal coming in? We were under an annexation suit by the city of Richmond. Uh, Richmond wanted 40-some square miles of Chesterfield County. And uh, it was a drawn-out court case. And one of the deciding factors of the annexation trial in 69-70 was DuPont. They wanted DuPont. The city of Richmond wanted DuPont some kind of bad. And this drawn-out court case, DuPont had an independent counsel, their own lawyer, and he'd come to court every morning, put a paper towel on the banister between the jury, the judge, and the people testifying. And he put a brick on top of that. Never explained what that brick was for six months of trial. And when he became the star witness on why Richmond shouldn't annex DuPont, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I've been bringing this brick to court every day we've been in session. And he said, if the city of Richmond is successful in annexing the area around DuPont, we won't put another brick in construction or revitalization in the DuPont plant in Chesterfield County. And he held that brick up. And uh, it was quite amusing. And subsequently, at the end of 1969, the court awarded the city of Richmond uh, 23 square miles. Uh, I believe it was uh, two volunteer fire stations and uh, 44,000 of our citizens. It was a setback for, for Chesterfield, but in retrospect, 
uh, many of the county officials are glad that the city of Richmond inherited that area around Southside Plaza. But uh, it was a long fought, drawn out uh, court case. So as a fire marshal, you were you were involved in that process as well? Right, Yeah. right. So, and, and you mentioned we lost two two companies. I know that what, what was the Forest View Fire Station that later became Station 9 that opened right after I got hired. That was part of it, right? Correct. And, and the Manchester Volunteer Fire Company on Bryce Lane. Uh, the Manchester Volunteer Fire Company uh, saw fit to relocate out on Hull Street Road next to then the Manchester High School. Started off with a temporary facility in a butler building. And I remember distinctly meeting with the county administrator up there one afternoon after work and the superintendent of the school board and he gave us a couple of acres to build a permanent fire station which is there today. Still there. Uh, station two. And I think the Butler building, at least it was in a, was out back, it was at that station. Was Is that the ba building that was out in the back of the station for That's a while? That's correct, yeah, yes. I remember that. Mm -hmm. yep. Let's uh, move out and, uh, you know, you got hired as a fire marshal, got a county fire code. Uh, at some point, the the volunteer uh, association of fire companies kind of made a decision they wanted a, a fire chief, is, is the, way the, the way the book reads. And um, from some notes out of that, uh, in January of 1969, a special meeting was called of the association, uh, and they voted, quote, in favor of hiring a fire chief and a training officer. Uh, and uh, the chief, the chief ward, who was the president of the association, advised the association that they had approved the recommendation to hire a county fire chief by nine in favor, two against, and one absent. So this wasn't a uh, overwhelming landslide victory by any way means, right? So there, there were some who weren't necessarily in favor of having a county fire chief at the time. That's that's correct. Uh, I, I was on uh, thin ice first couple of years, but the key thing that they would do and wanted to do, and I came from a training background in the city of Alexander Fire Department, is train, 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 with a lot of emphasis on safety. So I had 550 volunteer fire fighters in the county. Uh, amongst those 12 volunteer fire companies that would come to training in 1964, before I got arrived on the scene, the uh, Fire Association built a facsimile of a training uh, center at the courthouse, which was used up until a few short years ago before they got a first-class training center in the area of Enon. But we put a lot of time in the structural building, uh, had a 63-foot tower. We could do ladder work, rope work, and uh, it was a good training center or training facility for the volunteers to train on as early as 1964 on up until just a few short years ago when that was uh, demolished and they moved the training center to Enon. Yep. And um, that was uh, 1969 uh, when actually the, the uh, association later that year made the recommendation that you be appointed as the fire chief. So that recommendation came from the association that, that you be the the chief, so you moved from the fire marshal to fire chief at that point. And the notes in the book say David Barfield, another uh, one of our chief officers in the uh, department, moved to the fire marshal's position when you moved to chief. And uh, there was a training officer hired somewhere in there too, wasn't there? December the 28th, 1968, we hired uh, Battalion Chief Wesley Dozzle, who became, went on to become the deputy chief or assistant chief of the entire Chesterfield Fire Department. When we hired Wesley Dozzle, life got a whole lot better for me and uh, the, for Fire Marshal Barfield. Wesley had the innate ability to appeal to people to raise the level of training and start doing some planning for the future of the Chesterfield Fire Department. Wesley was a tremendous asset to the fire department and to me personally. Dave Barfield came in the second year of the Chesterfield Fire Department as a fire inspector in 1967. Uh, 
Uh, Chesterfield was, Chesterfield volunteer fire companies were being uh, overly influenced by high-pressured fire apparatus salesmen. One of the fire companies I mentioned had two separate and independent foam systems on them. Why in a residential area of Chesterfield you'd get two separate foam systems is beyond me. Neither one worked. The adductors were put in at the fire truck factory 180 degrees out of Keltor put in backwards. And uh, we finally straightened that out. I had a background in United States Air Force Fire Department, knew a little bit about foam application and foam induction systems. But uh, when Barfield came, he knew specifications for fire apparatus more than anybody I ever met. I know he spent some time with New York City Fire Department and uh, their maintenance shop and specification writing, and Dave was just a tremendous asset to our growing fire department through good, biddable specifications for fire apparatus. And was that did that then become like a county standard? Does, is that did that make the all the apparatus? Because when I came, we had CF Max, and that was kind of the standard we had. That was our standard. We had more CF Max, second only to the city of New York as a Mac fleet. When I got here, there were, I think it was six different colors of fire apparatus. Some red, some white, some red and white, and all other colors. And uh, we made a decision we're going to standardize on a uh, standard color. We did some work with a optometrist out in uh, Oregon and came up with the bright yellow as being one of the best colors for visual acuity on how far or when could you pick up the yellow in daylight, and it was one of the last colors to fade into darkness. So we started buying uh, DuPont, Dulux Enamel 93-52-48, and from that day on, all of the apparatus was painted that Chesterfield yellow. That, that brings up an interesting point, you know, um, that that mindset of we want that apparatus to be seen really kind of set the stage for safety for the department, I think, for years to come. Um, one of the other safety aspects, and, and I remember you sharing a story about uh, backing fire apparatus, and one of, the, one of the cardinal rules when I got hired was you do not back fire apparatus without the ground guide. Uh, you remember telling that story? I do. When I got here and started visiting the 12 fire stations, every, one, every piece of fire apparatus except two, Unit 42 and Unit 123, had been up a wrinkled back step. And this is when the firefighters rode the back step of a piece of fire apparatus. And I looked around and I finally asked somebody, what do y'all do, back by sound? <laughs> and I must have gotten an affirmative answer because right then we put in a rule, I still hope it's in effect, and I think it is, before you back up a piece of fire apparatus, you will deploy a ground guide or ground guides. And uh, that, that was the right thing to do. And uh, a joke on me is, uh, Wesley Donaldson said, if y'all keep having those backing up accidents, this is for the procedure we're in, he said, Eans is going to take the reverse out of the transmission of those fire trucks. So, <laughs> so you can't back them up anymore. <laughs> you can't back them up anymore. But that was the right thing to do that day. It yeah. really was. That, that showed because, I mean, that, that uh, like I said, that's, that call it tra tradition, that safety practice is still in place. And right. uh, Brett Clark, one of the senior instructors in the National Fire Academy Chief Officers Program, he bet everybody that they wouldn't use ground guides when they go back to their respective fire companies uh, after going to the fire academy. And I took on the bet. And he never had the fortitude to come to Chesterfield, Canada <laughs> to check a site. <laughs> he was going to lose. I assured him that we had ground guides and deployed them uh, every time a piece of Chesterfield Fire Department uh, apparatus backed up. That's awesome. And um, one other kind of safety thing that um, I think the department sometimes has gotten some grief from our colleagues around the, around the area, around the state. 
is uh, one other kind of cardinal rule that um, you would get fired for in the day is if you rolled through a positively controlled intersection. If that light was red, if that stop sign was there, that unit was going to stop and then go through once you knew it was clear. And there's a little history behind that one as well. If you want to yeah. share that story. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a tough lesson we learned after the rule went into effect. And I was satisfied everybody was stopping for everything. And one night, going to a fire which had already been marked under control in the Salisbury section of Chesterfield County, one of our pieces of apparatus, uh, air utility, going to fill some air bottles that had been depleted on that fire, went through a controlled intersection and very regrettably hit a 280Z Dodson, and subsequently it was a loss of life accident and uh, come to find out one of the volunteer fire companies didn't agree with the rule. And uh, it was a dark day, my darkest day in the Chesterfield Fire Department. And uh, it just again proved that we can stop at fire, uh, stop fire apparatus at signalized intersections, as you said, stop signs. And uh, the fire loss did not overwhelm Chesterfield County, may have Read, uh, increased our response time 30 seconds to a minute but again I think that has uh, we've had five fire chiefs now and I think all the uh, subsequent fire chiefs have seen uh, it necessary to leave that rule into force and effect yeah. and um, one of the other uh, kind of early early things in the department that um, in least from hearing and you, you talked to some ALCO or advanced leadership company officers programs mm -hmm. uh, in the years past and Chief Center brought you in for those. And I, I've learned a lot of lessons there. Uh, but some of the, the you know, we're now Chesterfield Fire and EMS and if you look at the numbers it's really EMS and occasionally a fire. Um, but one of the things you did early on in the department's history is um, made everyone go to become certified EMTs. What went into that decision and, and how did that take place? We had a pretty sharp fire captain in charge of fire training at that time. He was a University of Maryland grad fire protection engineer, Carl Semino Jr. And he went on back to the university to do some instructing for University of Maryland. And he came to me on his last day before he left the county and said, Chief, your ticket to the future is EMS and ambulances, not fire apparatus. And I thought about that, thought about that, met with Chief Dozel, uh, Chief Barfield, and we decided uh, we're gonna start EMT training for all of our firefighters, current and future, and it was the right thing to do. And uh, that by then, very regrettably, the four volunteer rescue squads had started missing some calls in the daytime. What year was this and about how many people were career firefighters? Because if I read the book right, it's about 69 or 70 when the first recruit school got hired that brought the first firefighters on. How many people were in the department at that time and, and about what time was that? We made a decision in 1977 that if you worked here, you're going to be an EMT along with your firefighting duties and all new employees uh, had to go to EMT school too. I can't tell you exactly how many what the numbers were then, but a little complaining over some of the people that said they came to work for Chesterfield uh, to be firefighters, and uh, but not a soul left. All of them uh, put their minds to it, passed the EMT test, and that was the beginning steps on what is now approximately 80% of the work of the Chesterfield Fire Department is EMS. We were the first ones to go the EMS route in uh, metropolitan Richmond. And uh, it was just the right thing to do for the uh, citizens of Chesterfield County. And you mentioned that was about 77 and uh, 83 when I came. It still We still weren't, I don't think, automatically responding on EMS calls. It was kind of at request or when those ambulances or the rescue squads weren't available at the time. What, what got us into the business of getting us a yellow ambulance? With, that's kind of the conversation. If it's a yellow ambulance, so it was a fire department ambulance because all the other the volunteers had different colored units. Right. But how did we go about getting our first fire department ambulance? 
one of the volunteer fire companies after annexation. Uh, <coughs> it wasn't annexed, but the volunteerism in that station and participation was slowly going down. And the volunteer fire chief came to me and said, Chief, I'm going to make your day. And I just didn't know what he was talking <laughs> about. We had lunch in a fire station. And I went in his office, and he said, here's a blank check. Go buy the first Chesterfield County EMS unit. And we did. Fire station number 11 used to be the Dale Fire Station. Volunteer fire chief or district chief, uh, Harry Shaw. Harry Shaw. And we bought, we bought that first EMS ambulance. And I knew if I could get one in one of the five magisterial districts, we got lost one magisterial district in annexation. I knew that other magisterial districts couldn't stand uh, not having one. So we got one, and uh, four more showed up pretty quick. Yeah, with because they don't they want to keep up with the Joneses. That's exactly you, right. You can't have one in your district, and I can't I have it. That's right. That brings up an interesting point uh, about the board, uh, the board of supervisors, and politics. And um, yeah, I'll I'll tell you this: um, as a young firefighter, I thought I thought we were doing some pretty crazy stuff when it related to working with the board. We put a medic in a board meeting. Uh, I wound up going to D.C. to pick up a board member. Who would, who would come back from a trip, who was sick, we brought him back in an ambulance. And again, I'm an I'm a ignorant firefighter at this point, and I didn't quite appreciate what that was doing for us as an organization. And I, I, I kind of pitch that back to you, is what, what, what from a leadership standpoint and interaction with those board members were those kind of things doing for us as an organization in the long term? Well, you were in the majority, Chief. <laughs> uh, in those early years, some of the young firefighters couldn't understand why we did so many things to help, assist, and placate the Board of Supervisors. But I wanted a smartly dressed firefighter out in front of a board member anytime, anywhere. And sending an EMS ambulance to uh, Dulles Airport to need a sick Board of Supervisors uh, member was just the right thing to do. We delivered board packets on the Friday before the Wednesday Board of Supervisors meeting. The um, secretary of the board would have some packets that needed to be hand carried, and uh, there were no courier services in Chesterfield County then, and we stepped up and uh, delivered the board packets, and it was one of the best things we ever did. The firefighters got to know where the board members live, got to know the board members, and the board members took a personal interest in the uh, firefighters, delivered those uh, board packets. It was one of the right things to do uh, at that time. So it was really about uh, supporting them in their job, getting us, us as an organization exposure to them and showing them we weren't just sitting at the fire station playing checkers waiting on the next call. We that's, were actually doing that's something. Correct. Yeah. That's correct. And I'll, I'll say that the, the higher I got in the organization, the more I got to work closer with you as when we worked on some uh, bond referendum the, all of that stuff started coming into clarity of oh that's why we were doing it right uh, right we uh i weathered i don't know three or four bond issues never lost one and uh, always came in second behind new schools the citizens knew and respected uh, what our requests were for new fire stations new equipment and it was a success story every time Chesterfield County had a bond, uh, bond issue uh, to support the fire department and the rest of the county. We worked hard and it paid off. Um, going back to some of the early days um, from the chief's perspective, what, what were some of the biggest challenges you had to overcome in the, you know, that early 70s as the new fire chief coming in, or as the fire chief coming in? You were the first one, so this was a, Groundbreaking. What uh, what type of challenges did you have to overcome, and maybe what type of successes did you have in working through those? Well, by then, the uh, some of the volunteer fire companies and the rescue squad had started missing daytime calls, and I think it was in October of 1969 we put 11 firefighters after a 
six-week tr rookie training class, put them on duty at the Bonn FI station. And that was the beginning of the hiring of Chesterfield firefighters. We separated fire communications from police communications July 1, 1967, and uh, that was the right thing to do, to have our own dispatches at that time with the first career firefighters went to uh, Station 4 in Bonhaire. They asked the Board of Supervisors for them. So it was the volunteers that were actually asking. It yes. wasn't the county. Mm -hmm. Did um, so? Wh what were the next couple of stations that went went that way? Did did the other volunteer companies then go? Okay, this is not the county taking us over. They're really supporting what we're doing for the community. Or was there any uh, was there any animosity in that back in the day? Well, Chief Barfield, Chief Dazzle, and myself made it a point that those career people or paid firefighters in Bonaire would not fail. And that put a good taste in the uh, other volunteer fire chiefs uh, mouth about, well, if it's working out up there, maybe we ought to. And I can't sit here and tell you today, uh, the second station or the third station, some of the stations we put uh, career people in daytime only. But it worked out so successful that volunteer fire companies just wanted them around the clock. And then we started putting them around the clock. And about that time, the uh, Volunteer Rescue Squad had started missing some day calls, EMS calls, which was pretty serious. Doing a great job of coverage from about 6 p.m. in the evening to 6 in the morning, but 12 noon, some of the Volunteer Rescue Squads had started missing calls. And I said, look, <coughs> y'all doing a great job after everybody gets home from work and before they go to work, let us use, uh, let us use, uh, your ambulance in the daytime. And uh, oh no, Mr. Ains, we're not going to, they didn't even call me chief. They said, <laughs> oh no, Mr. Ains, we're not going to let you put those blue shirts, meaning career firefighters, on our ambulances. And things got critical, and I called my good friend in Fairfax County, Warren Eisman. I said, Warren, I need to buy, borrow, excuse me, I need to borrow two EMS ambulances for about a week. He said, fine, you want me to bring them to you or you come and get them? State police helicopter dropped two smartly dressed firefighters down at Bailey's Crossroad. I was one of them. <laughs> and uh, we put them, put one in the county garage and we put another one at Dale Volunteer Fire Station, which probably has more vehicular traffic in front of that fire station than any other at the time. I said, Gentlemen, get out there and wax that EMS ambulance. Well, Chief, it's brand new. It doesn't, gentlemen, you don't understand. I wanted those blue shirts or paid firefighters to be seen with those Fairfax County ambulances. And that lasted about three days, and the Rescue Squad Association called me and said, Chief, can we have a meeting? I said, certainly. And uh, they said, we have rethought this thing. Can you put some paid firefighters on our ambulances uh, in the daytime. And that started the Chesterfield Fire Department moving more on a permanent basis for EMS work. We waxed those ambulances one more time and sent them back to uh, Fairfax County and thank Chief Eisman for doing that. And uh, Did they ever run a call? I don't know. I, I, I just don't remember. I know the one that went to the county garage because they didn't. The volunteers didn't know how many we had, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it was you don't like to play your hand like that, but it was the right thing to do at that time and that day. And so they'd rather have uh, county firefighters riding their ambulances than uh, us riding us riding a Fairfax or a yellow ambulance at the time. That is correct. Well played. Um, We'll talk about one more uh, one more big thing that I wanted to, to touch on, um, and that's um, this little one-year pilot program uh, the fire department got involved with back in 1984, if I'm not mistaken. This was a set up a, a one again a one-year pilot program. There was a partnership between Chesterfield Fire and EMS, Virginia State Police, and MCV Hospitals at the time, as well as the Office of EMS. Like I said, that was 1984, and that program is still going strong today. You know what I'm talking about. Well, 
got a surprise call from Lieutenant Dave Tollett with the Virginia State Police and Susan McHenry, who was in charge of the state EMS program at that time. And they said, Chief, we want to start a helicopter EMS uh, med flight program, and we want you to supply the paramedics. And uh, I got the county administrator's approval, board approval, and we put six Chesterfield firefighter EMT and paramedics on that helicopter to provide the EMS work for the one-year pilot program, and here it is almost 30 years later, they're still on that helicopter. Still going strong. A little bit different, a little bit bigger helicopter. Yes, sir. A little bit nicer. Uh, for anybody listening, it was a, I got wound up on that program about a year after that, uh, after I got my paramedic, and uh, we were in a Bell 206B Jet Ranger, uh, single single medical provider in the back with a patient, and uh, today they're they're flying in style in a much bigger aircraft with two engines and a flight nurse and a medic from the fire department. Right. So, been an overwhelming success for the uh, Virginia State Police, State EMS, the Chesterfield Fire Department. And basically, the receiving hospital was the trauma center at MCV. And uh, good support from the surrounding areas. And uh, it was just the right thing to do that day. How did we get, because at the time, uh, it was based out of Fire Station 14 at uh, right. 10 and 1. Uh, how did it end up there? Uh, we had a uh, helicopter audit for the Chesterfield Fire Department. And uh, we had built some fire stations, and Station 14 was identified as a, a helicopter base, and we put a heliport in that, which is still in existence today. And uh, the crew and the helicopter was uh, stationed for the first couple of years at Fire Station 14 at the intersection of Route 1 and Route 10 in Chesterfield County. And uh, subsequently, it was moved to a new hangar uh, at the county airport for the state police. But it was, again, an honor to be asked by the state police and the uh, state EMS uh, division to participate as a full partner in that. And I think the one of the times I heard you tell that story, uh, you mentioned you got the phone call from Susan McHenry, and the first thing that flashed through your mind was, uh-oh, what if my EMTs in the field done? <laughs> <laughs> but it was good news for it sure. It was good news. It was. So, um, anything else about the kind of the growing years of the department you want to share or uh, dive back into? Well, again, we we just put a tremendous amount of emphasis on training, safety, and planning. When Chief Lois Sunna, our current fire chief, asked me to develop a class on a history of the Chesterfield Fire Department. We talked about some of the planning studies we did, and one of the assistant fire chiefs, Jim Fitch, brought a book in. I think it was dated 1974, Fire Station Service District, Districts and uh, Station Location, and it was so good that they con still consider that as some of the growing pains in Chesterfield County and growing plans fire station service districts and and uh, fire stations yeah i remember that document because that was that came up in, in a couple of staff meetings of how how accurate it was coming out of the 70s and still was applicable to this was mid to 2010s i guess when we were looking at that the one time and it was pretty accurate you know, 40 years later right at that time one of my volunteer fire chiefs was a phd in statistics and probabilities at University of uh, Richmond. And he could bring a modem home in those days and tap into the big main computer at the University of Richmond and put the information in, the growth statistics, and met with county planning on where is the county grow. And we used, we used that growth plan and the current fire department is still referring to that on some growth studies for fire stations and service districts. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you, you hired the first uh, recruit class in 69, um, and I, 
I went through the hiring process in 82, and I think I told you I did skip high school to come and take the test one day, and you told me you're, you're glad I didn't tell you that at the time because right. you wouldn't have hired me, and there's a reason I didn't tell you that at the time, I guess. But um, the, the hiring process is a little bit different, and um, back then it was you took the written and physical test, and then you had a face-to-face interview with just the fire chief. That's um, correct. What, you know, what kind of what kind of things were you thinking about back then? Uh, because it's it's obviously changed now. Now you go to an interview panel. That interview panel makes recommendations to the fire chief because we're dealing with you know, several hundred people in the application process. As the fire chief, then what were you thinking about? What were you looking for in new firefighters uh, coming to the county? Potential officers, and a lot of those first eleven ended up being potential officers in <clears throat> the later fire department. I guess I'd put them off base a little bit when I'd sit down and say, Mr. Jones, you appreciate your interest in being a career firefighter for Chesterfield County. If you were fire chief tomorrow, what would you do? And boy, they'd fall apart <laughs> right there. And uh, we, uh, the fire chief did all the hiring and right, wrong, or indifferent in the first few years. Mm-hmm. And I can remember most of the interviews with most of those people today. Any of them that popped to your mind uh, really stuck out? Yeah, I, I can't think of this firefighter's name. And uh, he worked for, I think, Georgia Pacific down in Emporia, Virginia. And I said, whatever his name, what do you do at a day's work in that factory? He said, I, I do whatever Jimmy Ray tells me to do. I said, well, who in the heck is Jimmy Ray? He said, my boss. That was the end of that interview. I hired him and <laughs> never regretted it. And he became one of our top flight paramedics and uh, just did a good job. I figured if he did what his boss asked him to do, I wanted him on my He's team. Good guy. There we go. All right. Uh, we've been at it oh, just short of an hour here. Any uh, Anything else you want to share? I knew uh, we talked earlier that uh, the more, more we – do this and this gets shared folks are going to want to know hey tell me the story about fill in the blank from when uh, Bob Eanes was a fire chief so uh, maybe one day we'll get back together after people give us our feedback on that and uh, I'm sure there'll be other stories that I come up with that I want to delve into a little bit more anything else you want to No, if you're listening audience chief uh, ask some of those questions I think we sanitize some of those stories (laughs) and and tell it in your (laughs) podcast it's certainly been an honor I wish we would have put something in place in the early years to document more of the original history of the Chesterfield Fire Department. Uh, Former Battalion Chief Fire Marshal David Creasy did an outstanding job with his two or three books, but we don't have a running history of the fire department. We should have done that. I appreciate that. Maybe this uh, this podcast will become part of that history from here forward. So uh, the last question I typically ask everybody, particularly with anybody who's got um, uh, a history in the fire service, if you had the opportunity tomorrow to talk to the recruiting class, the recruit class that's going to be graduating here soon, uh, you know, obviously you, you were fire chief from 1969 to what year did you retire? 96. Okay, so a, a long career there and then went on further to serve the 20 county. 20 years as a assistant to the county administrator uh, in the main administration building. So mm-hmm. I had uh, 50 years and four months of total service with Chesterfield County. Great mm-hmm. place to work. Unbelievable. And, and I'll, I'll share this with you. One of the, I guess, kind of blessings I had in my career as fire marshal is uh, uh, your office is the assistant to the county administrator. It was right outside the door of my office. Right. And more than one occasion I'd walk in and say, hey, chief, do you remember when or know anything about this and it never failed that uh, at least you could fill in a lot of the blanks and help me in that, that position and fill, give me the history of what happened and how it got there and help me make better decisions. Yeah, with the loss of uh, Chief Barfield several years ago and uh, Chief Dozzle has retired, we still get together uh, for lunch from time to time. Uh, when Wesley and I leave, a lot of history is going to disappear about the original years of the Chesterfield Fire Department. Well, that Chief Dozzle is going to be is on my top of my list now. To oh, get he'll him do a great well. job. And maybe uh, maybe after I talk to him, we'll get the two of you together that'd, and get you two compared something. stories. That'd right. be a good time. So, 
Again, last question. Anything, any, any advice you'd give a new firefighter coming on for a, for a long and healthy career? Keep an open mind. Do what your officers and your chief wants to do. Behave yourself and uh, put a lot of emphasis on safety so you can go home in good shape tomorrow morning when your shift is completed after 24 years. The fire service in general has, uh, has changed since the early years and the formative years in 1966 of the Chesterfield Fire Department. Agreed, and with that, uh, we'll wrap it up, and I'll add my personal thanks to you for, uh, for setting the groundwork for this department, because I, I was a, kind of a recipient of a lot of the benefits of the things you did in the early days of setting us up for success going forward, and you're still seeing those successes today, and uh, thank you for your service to the Air Force and the country this community and Ettrick and the county as a whole, uh, I do appreciate it and uh, glad you come, could come in and share some of these stories with us. Well, I had a lot of good help in those formative years and I believe I had the opportunity to hire you twice, didn't I? Yeah, uh, yes, sir, you did. Yeah. You, you actually left the door open for me. <laughs> I, I, I do appreciate both of those both of those times. So, right. so thank you for that and uh, we'll wrap it up and just say thanks to everybody for listening. If, uh, if you have any comments or questions, uh, like, like we said, maybe Chief Eames will come back one day and if anybody's got questions, we can we can certainly collect those and have that conversation with him then. Uh, send me an email at firehouselogbook at gmail.com, or you can follow along on Twitter at FDLogbook. Instagram is FDLogbookPodcast. And um, be sure to follow along on Facebook at uh, the Fire Department Logbook uh, webpage on Facebook. So with that, we'll wrap it up for now and uh, say thanks to Chief Eans, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.